Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Human beings have been recording images for thousands of years. Some of the earliest evidence we have of human intelligence is the visual artwork created by our ancestors. But recording sound? That technology is less than 200 years old. So why did it take us so long to develop, and why did this capability advance so quickly? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Paul McGowan. Hey, thank you for having me back. I'm glad you could come back. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and uh, when we were talking about topics, uh, you had a really good idea. Um, it's almost, I would say, one of the most meta topics I've done on this show. Uh, you wanted to know about the history of audio recording. Yeah, you know what? I'm very proud. I think this is the first suggestion of mine that has ever actually worked as a topic. So I'm 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 quite chuffed about it. Oh, man, there must have been something back in the day. No, I mean, maybe not. I, I can't remember for sure. But uh, in any case, even if there were other ones, I, I, I was very excited to talk about this one. Um, it's a it's a really interesting topic. It's something that uh, obviously I, I am quite interested in. I make a podcast. Uh, I know you're quite interested in it as well. Um, so I'm hoping it's not too, you know, inside baseball. But uh, I, I think it's interesting stuff. Nevertheless, I, I learned a lot uh, researching it. So I, I think there's something in here kind of for everybody yeah it's one it's just one of those things that even outside of working in radio it's just one of those things i've always been like i'll stop and be like oh my god we can capture exactly the sound that that's that's in a room and it's perfectly preserved and and how does that happen it, it, it like sometimes it just low-key blows my mind yeah it's it's interesting stuff and honestly like one of the things that i find most interesting about it is we really didn't get started on anything even remotely approaching sound recording or sound transmission or anything like that through artificial means until the 19th century this is all very very recent stuff um i don't know there's 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 a whole bunch of ideas and and concepts that have to sort of come before it i think in a certain way like the the way that we think about like human perception and the way that like you know our, our senses work on both like a physical level and like a cognitive level a lot of that stuff doesn't really get thought about until kind of the 17th 18th centuries when you have you know people like uh you know newton or descartes talking about like the the barrier that like our senses put up between us and the world right and how it's like a very like uh personal thing right and 
it's really difficult to like conceptualize something that's like that fundamental, right? Like how does our body turn something like uh, a series of uh, uh, waves of pressure in the air into sounds uh, as we experience them, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's like it's like if you're trying to build a plane, you look at like what makes birds fly. And if you were in theory trying to, you know, build something that records sound, you would be like, okay, well, how how do we hear sound? And that's exactly where we start off, right? Is uh, a guy named Edwards uh, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville uh, in 1857. He invents something. Uh, it's called a phonograph, I think. I don't know if that's pronounced right, but uh, it comes from <laughs> phono, which is Greek for sound, auto, which means automatic, like self, and graph, which means writing. So something that writes sound itself. And, you know, our, our, our understanding of what sound was is actually like it's been around for a long time. It's that transmission or that, that translation from sound as it exists around us into like a format we can capture that was the hurdle we had to cross. I found stuff as early as like 2,400 years ago, Aristotle talking about sound as compressions of air striking air next to it. Like that's, that's sound. That's, that's it right there. Right. Wow. You know, uh, Vitruvius in 20 BCE, uh, compared sound to water waves just in three dimensions and in the air, which is again, correct. That's right. In the 17th century, we finally get to the point where, um, you know, Galileo is describing hearing as being a mechanism by which uh, we uh, capture waves vibrating uh, on the eardrum. So, like, as we get into that scientific revolution and start getting into, like, anatomy stuff, people start, like, you know, actually doing autopsies, understanding how the human uh, body works they start taking apart ears and they realize that like the mechanisms there are really you know our ears capturing sound waves and the eardrum vibrating this passing on the vibrations you know into the the middle ear with the the little bones and things like that um and eventually getting into like the the, the inner ear the the fluids they're finally kind of figuring out all of that stuff and it all makes sense to them but I think the the real hurdle with capturing sound comes from sort of the the how to put it sort of the temporal nature of sound like sound exists over time right with right. with like a painting you can look at something visually and you can capture a slice of it like a moment of it but it doesn't move right and right 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 you can kind of crystallize it. And when people start developing photography in the early 19th century, there's an understanding that like, well, if the, the light is there and it's bouncing back, if we had a way that we could capture that through some sort of process, it would be, you know, similarly crystallizing that visual moment in time. And that's not a huge leap to make, but what does it look like to have like that slice, that same like frozen moment of sound? Like you can't, really do that any more than you could do that with you know a taste or something like that right like it's not it's not really a, a thing that uh that, that we can like go back and revisit right right so when martinville goes and and begins working on this phonograph what he wants is to basically he basically goes well if i can't actually capture sound maybe what i can capture is a visual representation of changes in sound over time and he's not thinking about this as sound recording in uh, a way that could be like played back. He's thinking okay. about this. Uh, 
in, in, in like a really similar way that you might see like a heart rate on uh, like, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a show with a, you know, in a hospital with like that heart rate monitor beside the bed with the little line that bounces up and down. Right. So, so you, he's thinking about it more as like a, a graph almost. Exactly. Yeah. So he's, okay. he's looking for those changes in pressure over time. And so like something like a heart rate meter or an EEG or, or other, you know, similar, you know, a seismograph, there's lots of instruments that are doing similar things already. And he kind of goes, well, we could probably apply this to sound. Basically what he does is uh, creates a structure, uh, to get back to what you were saying earlier, that replicates the human ear in sort of a simplified manner. So he has a horn, like in an old timey, you know, gramophone, uh, to, yeah. to represent like the outer ear to like capture as much sound as possible. Right. Then he has a diaphragm inside, you know, it's a, it's a tightly, uh, stretched, uh, material sort of, uh, replicating a, an eardrum. And then okay. attached to this diaphragm is a stylus. And usually he used different materials, usually something like a, a you know, a, a hog's hair, something like that, like a fairly stiff, uh, single hair. And, what he did was set it up so that stylus was dragging across a um he, he took a cylinder and he wrapped paper around it that was coated in carbon black so like uh soot basically like take a take a pencil and like you know rub it on a piece of paper so it's as dark as possible right and it's wrapped around this 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 uh cylinder and he uh, the cylinder is on like a threaded track, so it slowly advances. And okay. as the sound comes into this device, it vibrates the diaphragm, you know, because it's, it's sound waves, they're vibrations in the air, which in turn vibrates the stylus. And what you get on the paper that the stylus is brushing against is a faint impression of the sound waves over time. Right. Because as the diaphragm vibrates back and forth, it moves the stylus back and forth. And what it's drawing on this paper is a waveform. And what like what did he see as the utility of this? Was he just kind of playing with the, the way that you could record sound or, or was he like building towards something or did this have a practical use in his mind? I mean, he didn't really do a whole lot practically with it. It was more an idea of like, how could we begin you know, recording this in a way that is, you know, in any way measurable or meaningful, you know, they don't have, you know, decibel meters and things like that at this point in time. Like, it's just a matter of like, can we capture this intangible thing in any sort of visual uh, manner? And, you know, by creating this graph, he's figuring out a way to capture it over time. Um, the, th this device isn't like there's a bunch of experiments that are done with this. He makes a bunch of, of recordings like this, but it doesn't really go any further than that. He never really thinks of it as something that he can take and take that waveform and sort of reverse the process, right? Not like he, he hasn't realized that you can take that waveform, have it affect a diaphragm and make it push out sound. Right. He really sees it as a one way process. There's another inventor uh, about 20 years later, uh, 1877, a guy, guy named Charles Cross, who suggests that maybe the process could be reversed. Like he's the first one to look at this and be like, you know, maybe maybe that we can do, you know, exactly the things that I just said. Um, he sort of comes up with some theories on how to do it. For example, he wanted to take the um, 
the carbon black paper and sort of use a chemical process to etch it onto metal. So it'd be a little, so the, the grooves would be a little bit more uh, durable, I suppose. Um, and he called it a paleograph, paleo meaning uh, the past and graph meaning writing. So writing of the past, which is kind of a cool name. Kind of cool. Also kind of, you know, kind of expansive. It covers a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, and this is an interesting idea. And it's it's especially interesting, like in, in the ensuing years, there's actually been studies done on these uh, phonograph uh, recordings where people have taken the waveforms that were recorded by them and digitized them, turned them into waveforms, right? Basically wave files and played them back. And some of them are actually, you know, pretty reasonably audible. Like they're not for being essentially the first sound recordings ever. They're not half bad. What kinds, what kinds of things did he record that people were able to play back? Music, of course. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he took it to like concert halls and, and things like that. Um, there's a couple of different pieces that, uh, I think there's about three different pieces that are, uh, like pretty, pretty discernible out of these waveforms, which is, which is pretty cool. I don't. And I mean, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but you're, you're kind of blowing my mind in that. I don't think I ever realized, I don't think I ever realized how much information is in a waveform. Yeah, it's if it, that makes sense, you know, I, I, I we just thought it was like a a kind of measure, like the shape of the volume of a thing, I guess, um, is how I pictured it. You know, that that's it's 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 tricky, right? Because the, the, that's where I was kind of getting at with some of the, the stuff around like our perception of sound, right? Sound is sound is a little bit weird, especially when you know we, we we generally compare all of our senses to to sight, right? Like because sight is such a primary sense for us. Um, the way we perceive light is very different than the way we perceive sound. When you look at something, and you know you look at a you look at a red ball and you go, oh, that's red. You have a whole bunch of different wavelengths of light bouncing off of that ball into your eyes. There's other information about, uh, you know, the surroundings that influence how you see that ball is red. There's, uh, information about how dark it is, how reflective it is. All of that stuff goes into it. But like at the end of it, what you're looking at is a ball and you're like, that is red, right? There is a single, Mm -hmm. there's sort of a single value assigned to it. Most of our other senses, hearing included, are summative in a different way that we can perceive sort of multiple inputs within the same bit of information sound is tricky that way right like you you i wasn't planning to get all like into the physics and stuff but like when when you hear something like there is also you know undertones there are harmonic tones above it like there are you know you can hear a thing and hear multiple notes at the same time, right? It's right, it's, right. it's summative in a way that um, actually allows us to perceive it in multiple ways, and right because of that, you know, and because and because we're kind of used to sight being you know more more primary, we tend to kind of forget that no matter how summative that experience is, so you know, when you, when you sit down and, and I don't know, you're in a, you're in a cathedral and you hear somebody slamming all 10 fingers on a, on a pipe organ and you hear all 10 of those notes, it's still just a waveform that is hitting your eardrum. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The air is vibrating in a certain manner. And that manner changes over time. But like all of those harmonics that are contained in there are still, uh, as Vitruvius was 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 describing it, it's it's like waves in the air in three dimensions. It's just it's just compressions and relaxations of of the air around us. So yeah, there's there's a ton of information uh, stored in a waveform. There's really really a lot. But you can always have a single waveform, which is you know a graph of changes in both volume and pressure over time that's all of the information you need to recreate every sound that exists that is bonkers you've you've blown my mind already okay i love this that's great i'm 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 glad to have been of service it's it's interesting stuff and it's it's really difficult and i think that summative nature is part of the reason that people kind of didn't try for a long time because there is sort of that aspect of like well how do you capture something as complex as uh, you know as as certain forms of music right for mm-hmm. for you know if we want to get really pedantic about it for a long time recording sound was a matter of like you know writing or it was a matter of uh sheet music things like that it's ways that you could reproduce something yourself or like have somebody reproduce it for you it's not actually yeah. capturing the moment what they're realizing with these waveforms is that you can actually capture the moment if you capture the right types of information in the right ways. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like I, I massively sidetracked us. Okay. So this Not experiment okay. trying to turn waveforms into to then like manipulate a diaphragm to then mm-hmm. you know come out as audio. How how did that end up sounding? Well, the the one in two thousand and eight that uh, that went back and took all of that stuff. It's I, I mean it sounds pretty bad but like it is the first recording ever (laughs) but it's 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 discernible um as far as in actual 1877 when charles cross was was uh proposing all of this it didn't actually go anywhere and the reason for that is that in 1876 uh the telephone had been invented telephones are interesting because i know what you're thinking you're going well like hang on how come if you have a telephone uh recording is like really any harder than that you're already transmitting sound uh through electrical signals right yeah the thing is the whole point of a telephone is that it's not being recorded it's instantaneous so it is a way to um you know it's essentially a glorified pair of tin cans with a wire between them right it's just converting the sound signals into electrical signals and back to sound signals on the other end. Right. The telephone gives us like key technology for all of this stuff. Most importantly, uh, the, um, the microphone, right. And, uh, you know, conversely the, uh, the speaker on the other end, but in, in the telephone, they're basically the exact same item. Um, something called a carbon microphone. Uh, it uses little, you know, beads of, of carbon beneath or between, two metal plates that, uh, you know, as, as, uh, air hits it, it changes the, uh, resistance and those changes in resistance are what get transmitted over the telephone line. Um, and then at the other end, when the electrical signal is being applied, uh, as the resistance changes, it manipulates the, the speaker on the other end and, and forces out the sound, uh, really low quality, but it does the job. Yeah, I mean, there must be there must be recordings out there, eh, of like the first, the very first, what that first telephone would have sounded like. Yeah, sure. If you if you're looking around for it, it's it's pretty tinny, you know. 
Um, yeah, yeah. But it's it's discernible. That's that's really what matters. Alexander Graham Bell, obviously the guy that invents the telephone, but Thomas Edison was hot on his heels with a lot of this stuff. There's a bunch of really boring patent dispute stuff that we don't need to get into right here. But Edison was really interested in telephone as like a business communication solution. People have like for as long as people have been doing business, been trying to find a way to like not have to do it in person, but still trust uh, the veracity of the information being uh, transmitted. This is sort of like what faxes are for, right? Like it's that idea that you can like sign a document and send it off and there's no possible way you could forge it, I suppose. Um, right. You know, it's, it's that same sort of thing. There are telegraphs at this point in time, but you don't really necessarily know who's sending them. Um, other than, you know, the, the chain of custody of the, the telegraph office and so on, they're, they're essentially written messages. So what Thomas Edison wanted to do was basically figure something out where you could have a phone conversation with somebody, but like, if they're not available to pick up, you could still leave them a message. He's trying to invent the answering machine. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why that's funny, but that's funny to me. It's funny to me too. Uh, it, like realistically, like this is the only thing that I am. I'm well, I mean, I shouldn't say the only, it's one of the few things I'm willing to give Thomas Edison, like quite a bit of credit for, for doing a lot of his other inventions are either, you know, done by his uh, engineers or straight up stolen from somebody or, you know, iterative on an earlier idea. This one is pretty novel. Um, he wouldn't have been uh, familiar with the phonograph. That stuff is all happening in France, um, and it's it's relatively obscure. Right. He wants Edison. He wants something that can both record and play back sound. So the idea being that you could leave somebody a message in your own voice, and that they can listen to that message at their own leisure in the future. It's. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I mean, I don't know a ton about Thomas Edison, but it's it's interesting to me on some level that he saw this as a as a business tool as opposed to like, I mean, it's it's a very on some level and maybe this is just me, like it's kind of you're romantic, the idea that you could capture somebody's voice or capture a message from somebody and then save it forever, like past that person dying. But this was but this was business to him. This is entirely business to him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. You know, he he had this experience with diaphragm and speaker technology through all the phone work that he had he had gone through. And basically, in a fairly short amount of time, he drew up a design for a prototype and he handed it off to one of his engineers and basically said, you know, build this thing that I'm thinking about. And he's sort of expecting this to be essentially an intermediary step in between, you know, just his kind of tossed out thoughts and whatever this will eventually turn into. But what he comes up with is in a lot of ways fairly similar to that phonograph process that we talked about. The main difference being that rather than inscribing the waveform as like a squiggle that you can see on the on the sheet of paper, uh, he sets it up so it's at a, a perpendicular angle so that when the diaphragm moves, it creates uh, hills and valleys in a straight track. Okay. And he does this so that you can get more uh, information encoded in a smaller space, right? Because if it's not wiggling left and right, uh, you can space the grooves closer together. Okay. Okay. So essentially he's got, you know, a horn that you talk into 
uh, a diaphragm that captures the sound, a stylus that is going to engrave this in. He actually originally looks at discs, but he doesn't like the disc format for recording sound. And the reason for that is like honestly something that plagues uh, you know audiophiles to this day, which is it's really hard to keep a consistent speed you know on a flat disc because as you move from the edge to the center, the diameter of the disc changes. And it's hard to keep a, a consistent speed when you do that. You can get speed ups right. or slowdowns, right? Yeah, yeah. With a cylinder, it's always exactly the same diameter all the way around. So you have no problems with that speed up slowdown issue. Okay, so so just to, to recap, so, this, so the stylus is more on these cylinders, like carving, like carving the waveform down as opposed to squiggling it across. That's right. Yeah, on, on Edison's version. And and what does the stylus like what does the stylus have to have to look like to be able to do that? Um the Edison ones are it's it's I can't remember which metal he uses, but it's a it's a metal and it's a very thin, you know, it comes to a very thin point. Uh Edison is again thinking about this in a business context. Um there is no real permanence in mind here. The idea is to pass messages. So right. what he uses as a medium is actually tin foil. So it just needs to be hard enough to uh, indent tin foil uh, so that it holds the shape. And then because the uh, because the the unit needs to play it back as well, when you run that same stylus over the tin foil, it needs to react against the the diaphragm and play the uh, the sound back. But it's just tinfoil. Like it's not, it's not thick. It's not terribly hard. Um, it just needs to be a, a very thin metal stylus. Wow. Yeah. So he's thinking like, ah, I'm going to try this thing out. It's not going to work very well, right? Engineer slaps it together, ready to go, and you know the engineer goes, well, what do you, what do you want to, like, you have, you have to talk into it now, and so <laughs> Edison fires off, Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> into this thing <laughs> okay yeah as you do as you do and uh you can find recordings and you know what in fact i might actually stick that in right here uh just so everyone could hear uh what it sounds like oh man that is wild it's perfectly discernible. Like it's, I don't know why that's so cool. You know what the case, you know the other thing that I immediately thought I was like, you know what this guy is? He's kind of got decent radio presence. You know what I mean? Like he has he has some some presence to him. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. But like I, I think the the thing that always gets me on this one is like he just sort of he just sort of went, hey, what if we tried recording sound like this, and it just kind of worked um you know edison himself said like he never trusted anything that he got right on the first try uh because right. it just meant that there were problems he hadn't found yet and they'd come up later but this was the one invention that like the first time he heard it he was like nope that's it we like we got it and you can kind of hear why right like it's not to go from not being able to record sound to to that where you can you know not just not just hear what he's saying but like also kind of captures like the the timbre or whatever you want to call it of his voice and sure. like I, that's it, that's an incredible first step it, yeah it's it's phenomenal it really really is um the way that they decided to demonstrate this uh to 
you know, to investors, to the press, so on. Um, I, I actually really love this. Uh, they would basically tell them, hey, we've got a new invention that we want to show you. And they would bring them in and they would sit them down in a room with uh, this phonograph, which is what he called his version, and basically didn't tell them what it was, but showed them where the crank is to kind of turn the thing, right, and get it going. And there was a recording that they'd made that was like, you know, hello, this is the phonograph. What do you think of it, basically? But it would come out of the phonograph and people would just like lose their minds. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can imagine. Oh yeah, of course. It's it's extremely effective. I, I really I really like that tactic. Like it's super cool. Yeah, no one had ever really heard anything like it. And I mean, there there are people who are who are listening to it and were like completely unimpressed, right? Like they're just like, this doesn't like this sounds record like this sounds terrible. Like, why would anyone ever need this? But there's other people who were really blown away by it and really saw the potential in it, right? And you know. I suppose that's any new invention, really, but I, I have a hard time listening to that and being like, so what? We've recorded for sound for the first time in human history. What's the big deal? Uh, yeah, I know. That's that's I don't know. I think that's so cool. The foil had really bad quality, like really bad durability. Uh, as we talked about, it wasn't really meant to be that permanent. So they started working on other formats and they landed on uh, one that actually cut a groove into wax and you've probably heard of using wax cylinders before right for for recordings yeah 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 and it's it's a really popular format for a really long time and this is the format that people start using for you know entertainment for recording music for selling music commercially there's a really big problem with early sound recording uh we have a device that can uh record sound to a, a cylinder and we have a, a device that can play it back from that cylinder but you know even the first generation for lack of a better term uh recordings are pretty poor quality and they tried making copies of them by basically taking two phonographs and like putting the the horns together and like recording the sound that one put out that's such an elegant solution oh it was awful it didn't work at all like think about the step down between like the human voice and what we just listened to right yeah and then you're taking it a further step down didn't work they tried you know like they, they had a solution where there was like a like a hose basically that ran between the two to try and like minimize you know room noise and things like that nothing was really working and what ends up happening is they realize there's really no good way to record other than like a fresh recording, like a recording to a cylinder from reality. And, right. And so the way they're making me recorded music in this era is you would hire musicians on and they would basically sit there in a room and number one, you have to be very, very close to the, the phonograph to record because it can't really pick things up, right? We're not using a microphone here. It's actual like physical sound going into the bell and being uh, uh, engraved onto the, onto the wax. Right. Number two, the dynamic range is really small. So you don't get very low noises or very high, high noises, and you don't get uh, a lot of loud or quiet. It's basically just the one thing. So if you're too quiet, it doesn't pick it up. If you're too loud, it basically 
blows the like it'll it'll go right through the wax and it doesn't pick up highs it doesn't pick up lows so you got to use instruments that fit the range you all have to crowd around this little bell and you kind of have to do like trial and error of like how loud to play how loud to sing where to place everybody you know like you couldn't use a snare drum they would use a wood block instead of a snare drum because a snare drum would blow the thing out right okay and so these these recordings that they're making are they like who are they for? Is it like like, like re- recorded history? Is it just like recording it to have it? Well, like is the idea that this music is like that people can own a phonograph and like play this back on their own wax cylinder? Yeah, that's the thing. Once once it starts picking up, once the phonograph takes off, people want this. Like you can understand why people would want a phonograph in their home. And like initially mm-hmm. pretty expensive, but they're actually not that expensive to manufacture. They're relatively attainable for like a pretty decent cross-section of society to have a phonograph in their home the the expensive part is the wax cylinders so they are creating these for entertainment purposes like they're selling them the same way that we would will be selling records for the rest of the for the rest of the story um these these musicians though and and like honestly the worst thing that could happen to you as a musician in this area is to have a hit song um because what would that what that would mean is you have to come into the studio. You might be able to, depending on how the the band is structured, you might be able to get set up around like four or five uh, gramophones or sorry phonographs. And there was technology that they figured out. It's um, it's something called a pantograph. I don't I don't know if you've seen anything like this before. Uh, I'm trying to think how best to describe it. It's more complicated than this, but okay. Imagine you are going to write your name and attached to the pen is like a stick that's like two feet long. And at the other end is another pen and it's on another piece of paper. And so when you write your name once, it writes it on the second piece of paper at the same time. Does that, okay. does that okay. track? Yeah, yeah. 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 Essentially that, but for like, styluses on gramophones and you know much more elegant than what i'm i'm describing so you could cut two multiple uh wax cylinders at a time the best they could do was 25 per um you know initial phonograph so best you could really do as a musician is each take that you do in the uh studio might get you 100 150 possibly copies Oh my God, that's nothing. And then they pull them all off, packages them up, put blank ones back on, and now you have to play your song again. This is your life now. Oh my God. But that's all we had. So, I mean, yeah. When you, when you got a recording of a, of a song, like you were getting a recording of that take. Like there is right, so like, your recording might sound different from your neighbor's recording. Will almost certainly sound different. And I mean, yeah. you know, that depends on the quality of the the musicians and stuff like that. But like, they're not necessarily killing takes for like a small, you know, an inconsequential mistake, right? For sure, yeah. So there's almost certainly variations in the music. I mean, that's I I think that's amazing. Super cool. Sucks to be a recording artist. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just awful. Around this time, you have uh, a guy, uh, another French guy, Emile Berliner, uh, who in 1887 comes up with uh, a slightly different technique for recording. 
This one is using side to side waves rather than up and down waves again. So you need a lot wider tracks, but he figures out a way to do this into um, basically hard rubber and then make a cast out of this, like a metal cast that he can then press into discs over and over. So he actually figures out how to reproduce recordings. Right. That's easier with side to side because you don't have to worry about variations of depth affecting the sound quality, but you can get, you can't get nearly as long of a recording onto a disc. So there's a right, lot right. of trade-offs there. That, that technique though is entirely for entertainment purposes, right? It's entirely for being able to record a song and just start turning out copies, right? Um, he comes up with the process of, well, number one, recording them to discs, which uh, remember Edison hadn't wanted to do. Number two, uh, the shellac records. Have you ever seen a shellac record? No, no, never. These are like the old, old, like they, they're almost exclusively 78s, right? Um, which is a 78 RPM record there. They were the, they were the standard, uh, I mean, basically like the twenties through the fifties sort of thing or forties, uh, LPs really come okay. up kind of after the war. Um, but they were, you know, 12 inches, but because they're going 78 RPM, you could get a three minute song on them. These shellac records, they're made of like a, um, like they're much denser, they're much heavier, and they're much more fragile than what you would think of with like a vinyl record. Um, okay. But they're also a lot more durable. Like they will hold a song forever. Right, right. So these become really popular with like the general populace because they're easier to store than cylinders. They last longer than cylinders. And, you know, they sort of sound a little bit better than cylinders as well. And by like 1910 or so, the writing is like really on the wall for cylinders as a medium, right? Like it's it's clearly moving towards discs as being the the way to go. Um, however, that that being said, wax cylinders would continue to be used for business purposes specifically into the 1950s. Get out! They last a really long time. Well, because they're cheap, right? They're cheap and they're easy. And sometimes it's not about like sound fidelity sometimes it's just about getting something down on recording and we're talking about not necessarily like you know taking messages back and forth but also for like dictation for example right yeah uh you could dictate into one of these things and have your secretary type it up kind of thing okay totally inconsequential question i mean would would these wax cylinders just be stored in like a little canister yeah that's that's my understanding is it's like a little uh I think they're like a cardboard tube kind of thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But like wax is kind of like, it's fragile, right? Like if you, if you heat yeah, it up too yeah. much, it's done. Like there's, there's a bunch of issues there. The, the, the hard material is clearly the way to go with telephone technology, which is kind of happening completely separate from all of this, right? The conversion of sound to electricity and back to sound is essentially solved it's just completely separated from the recording process, right? Yeah. This starts to change uh, in 1902 when a guy named Lee DeForest uh, begins developing the vacuum tube. Vacuum tubes are important uh, for exactly one purpose, which is they allow a very um, clean, by which I mean 
doesn't introduce a lot of like extraneous uh, electrical information. They allow a very clean voltage upstep. In sound transmission terms, that means that you can make a sound louder without ruining the quality of the sound. Okay. So in terms of thinking of like the very simple recording apparatus, like where does the vacuum tube go? To start with, it doesn't go into recording at all. This is developed for... Oh, okay. This is for the phone. This is for the phone. This is specifically for long okay. distance calls because when you're calling long distance, the resistance in wires, like the physical wires between you and the person you're calling, the longer the signal has to travel over these wires, the resistance causes the voltage to drop, which actually makes your voice quieter. So in this era, the further away someone is that you're calling on the phone, the quieter they are, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, that's pretty great. So for long distance calls, they need a way to step up the voltage to increase the volume for these longer distance calls. Um, so DeForest perfects these by about 1906 or so, gets them really clean, gets them working really well. And this is going great for telephones. In terms of music, in terms of entertainment stuff, it actually first enters the chain uh, as an amplifier for speakers in 1912. See, up until now, basically, however loud you played the sound into the phonograph, that's how loud the sound comes back out. Okay. It's a one-to-one, -one, right? Because it's a physical, it's a physical uh, etching of the sound. So because you're going back off of that etching, it's going to force the diaphragm of the phonograph to uh, vibrate at exactly that same speed and intensity which means it's going to be the same volume more or less. You're going gotcha, to, yeah. you're going to lose some volume and the mechanics of it and things like that. But that's basically as loud as it gets. What if you want to listen to your music louder? Well, we put vacuum tubes in between the uh, record player and the, uh, you know, the loudspeakers, which allows them to make, you know, speakers you can turn up. Right. And so that, that gives, so it's not just like not just like necessarily amplifying, but but giving you the control to either amplify or or turn it down. Uh, you know, you're not getting a volume knob at this point because each vacuum okay, tube okay. is each vacuum tube is going to be a set uh, step up. But you could turn on right. amplification or not. Basically, this okay, is this okay. is being used more in like public settings, uh, PA systems, things like that. Um, right, right. You wouldn't necessarily use it at home. It's just like if you're at you know you're. Uh, I don't know. You're doing your stump speech at your, your, you know, 1912, uh, governor's run or whatever. And you want to play, here comes the chief. I don't know. You want to play your music. You want people to hear it. This is what you need to actually yeah, get people yeah. to hear it. Okay. The next really important step is 1916 with the development of the condenser microphone. It's weird how many pieces of this technology and this this is going to continue through it's weird how early a lot of this stuff shows up and everything since has just been re uh, refinements it really really is yeah so 1916 the condenser microphone is invented by ec wente uh working at western electric a condenser microphone is basically just a powered microphone where the distance between the two charged plates inside changes the voltage 
So when okay. when sound waves hit it, it moves the plates closer, which changes the voltage. And so what you get is variance in voltage, which, as we talked about with the phone, is exactly the, the standard that they're used to using for transmitting sound information. Uh, having this condenser microphone in place um, allows for, you know, things like public address systems, you know, you can take that electrical information, push it to a loudspeaker, turn it up with vacuum tubes, and now you can speak really loudly. It's great. And no one will ever use that for nefarious purposes. I got, okay, I got it. <laughs> um, the nice thing about a condenser mic is it's significantly more sensitive than anything that we've had before this. Um, you know, and, and what I mean by before this, I'm, I'm talking about those, those carbon microphones from the telephones, right? Right. Um, it also gives you much higher ranges of frequencies. So you can get again, higher highs, lower lows. Condenser mics are still used to this day fairly, fairly regularly. Works better in a studio setting, like a proper studio setting that's soundproofed, uh, because it is so sensitive, but it allows you to get like really crisp clean sound out of stuff then in 1923 you get the first dynamic microphone uh invented by uh hj round who was actually a protege of of uh guglielmo marconi the guy who uh you know one of the very early like radio pioneers right yeah yeah um dynamic microphone uh uses a magnetic core that's suspended in uh coils of wire and so the core is attached to a diaphragm and when the diaphragm vibrates it changes the uh, electromagnetic charge uh, and that's what it's interpreting as, as sound converting that into voltage changes um, dynamic microphones are great uh, they're really simple like there's not a lot to go wrong with them um, they're more directional than most other types of microphone so you can you know not pick up everything in a in an area uh, and that directionality is going to be improved over time um, it's also less sensitive than something like a condenser, but sometimes that's a good thing. Um, sometimes that's what you're looking for. And are these new microphones being used just as you said, like in, in PA systems, for example, in public speaking, or are, you know, are these microphones also being used to record onto discs? Well, we're, we're, we're getting there the next year okay, in okay, 1924, okay. um, Western electric, uh, the company that, uh, that developed the condenser mic, they start talking with um, Columbia Phonograph Company, uh, Columbia Records, you know, and uh, the Victor Talking Machine Company um, to start licensing this tech to basically begin a new generation of recording technology. They're, they're looking at the fact that, you know, we actually have better quality sound coming through these these microphones, uh, you know, that they can deal with higher dynamic ranges, more sensitivity, um, better control over volume, uh, stuff like that. And like that, this is clearly going to give us better sound. Maybe we need to start developing better sound recording processes and better mediums to, to deal with that. Uh, both of these companies are going to license the technology, obviously. Um, oh, the, the other one that was invented in 1923 is the is the Riven mic by Harry F. Olson. Um, 
it's it's just a more sensitive version basically of the the dynamic microphone but it's really popular in in controlled environments again because you can get bi-directionality uh it's useful for drums especially you know but uh a lot more a lot more sensitive a lot easier to to kind of break what kind of mic are you using right now i don't need the brand i'm just kind of kind of curious i you know what i i don't know it's like the sure sm58 that, i don't know if that is I, a dynamic microphone right there that is that is one of the most classic uh dynamic microphones out there uh i'm also using a sure mic right now not the not the sm58 but mine is mine is also dynamic you know what it's it's nice for something like this because uh you know if somebody you know if a, if a motorcycle goes by outside i've got a chance of not picking it up uh it doesn't pick up too much in the way of room noise things like that but you can get a nice, clean, warm sound out of it. Um, SM58 is great. I've I, I, I've used SM58 a bunch of times over the years. They just they just work. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was going through school, it was kind of the standard. So that's that's what I've rolled with ever since. It's a standard for a reason. I I, I yeah. I really do love them. They're they're very good microphones. But yeah, this is this is the tech. This is the tech that's developed in the in the twenties. It really hasn't changed much other than refinements which is kind of wild to think about seriously seriously the dynamic microphone is also reversed into dynamic style speakers right like you get like magnetic drive speakers um it's just the exact same principle in reverse right you apply electrical charge to the coils around the core the core uh, responds to the changes in in uh, magnetic fields uh works against a diaphragm that emits sound it's pretty it's weird how simple it is sometimes but it works yeah so there's these secret there's these secret they're not that secret but there's kind of secret talks between western electric and these uh these recording studios and basically what they decide on and this is kind of wild to me because it seems good which is not an outcome i was expecting here um they decide in february of 1925 that they are all going to adopt this technology, but they all agree not to issue any of the new generation recordings until November of 1925, because they all want a chance to deepen their catalog enough with these new, what they call electric recordings, in order for them to have product to sell all at the same time. I suppose you could look at that as like price fixing, but like it's not right. Like it's like a very like gentlemanly agreement. Yeah. I mean, I can see it on an individual company level, like you wanting to have, you know, your back catalog stock so that you can sell these records, but to, to agree with another company that, okay, you, neither one of us is going to jump the gun here. That, that, yeah, that seems out of character for, <laughs> for, I don't know, my picture of business in the twenties, the recording industry and their, and their, their, their yeah. lovely, their lovely kind business practices that they're oh so yeah. famous for. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. They, they, they gave each other or they, they gave themselves, I suppose, all eight months to figure this stuff out. Wow. So this is 1925 by 1929. Only one major record label is still issuing acoustic process recordings. It's a, it's a label called Harmony. Uh, Those dinosaurs. Well, I've never heard of them, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, that goes to show you how, how popular having that level of control over your recordings becomes, right? Because, you know, the, the, the other thing that's going on here is with microphones, 
you have the ability to sum signals, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have each person in the band with their own microphone and have it all going into the same final, you know, the same final thing, getting it all recorded at once. Now you're all still recording a single take all at the same time. It's not individual tracks, but you don't have to like crowd around a little like gramophone, right? Right. But, but so yeah, as you say, every recording though is still 100% live. Yes, absolutely live. Okay. Um, you know, popular music sees a shift towards, you know, the wider frequency ranges. So higher highs, lower lows, uh, you know, actually incorporating dynamics so loud and soft into recordings, things like that, because the tech can now actually capture it. Um, it's, it's funny they they actually had to, for the first little while, uh, they had to still limit the frequencies of these recordings to run on the old acoustic gramophones because they could get the sound so loud that they were wearing out gramophones. Um, they weren't capable oh, of no like way. playing the discs properly. So for a while, until people started changing over, um, you're, 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 they're, they're kind of self-limiting, but it still sounds amazing. And they actually have capabilities to sound even better than what they're selling. Um, and you sort of see that come out in um, specifically movie sound technology. Uh, you don't necessarily think of a, about it a whole lot, but like movie movie technology is really key to the development of sound dev- uh, sound recording technology, right? Um, I always sort of wondered why you know ja- the jazz singer nineteen twenty seven like you know why why then why are we ready to do sound in movies now? Well, it's it's electric recording. You know, right, right. We can actually mic stuff now. Now we can actually like make, you know, now we can actually capture sound from a movie. You know, it's still difficult at first. Like the, you know, when they did the jazz singer, they basically had a, had a a system where they, they recorded the whole uh, soundtrack to the, and, and I mean like the, not, not the soundtrack, like the OST, but like the soundtrack of the movie, all of the sounds of the movie to a record that was sort of synced up with the projector right right and it had to like be played at the same time which is really finicky but when like you know how now when you go to a theater you're like wow this is amazing sound yeah basically then you would have the same experience except the the amazing sound that you were going to hear that was better than anything you could get at home was roughly the equivalent of like a 1950s record player um it's just that the movie theaters had the money uh, and the resources to, you know, put together an all electric system and play discs that are all electric. Whereas what you would buy at home was limited by acoustic gramophones. Gotcha. Right. There's other stuff that's really driven by the, uh, the movie industry, uh, directional microphones, shotgun mics, that kind of thing is, is really important because if you're doing music, who cares where the microphones are placed, right? Um, right. When you're making a movie, you can't have a mic in, in scene that ruins the immersion. So you got to figure out how to record good sounding audio from out of frame. It's easier said than done. By 1931, they'd actually abandoned the, um, the record uh, going beside it for uh, the, the movie audio. And they come up with something called optical sound. And what that is is they actually record, uh, they they convert the uh, sound wave form 
into uh, light intensity. Okay. And there's a strip beside the 35 millimeter print that's just for sound. And that strip is just variants of brightness that a film projector can read and convert into sound waves. That sounds so far advanced for that time. The movie industry had so much money and so many resources to put towards this and the records were bad. So they found a better way. That is bon- okay. I mean, look, this is coming from a, a complete idiot who has no <laughs> idea how, how, how CDs work, but that sounds closer to me to CD technology than to like vinyl to vinyl records. So I, I it's not, um, the, okay. And, and that's fair. That's fair. And the reason I would say that, okay. So, okay. Think about it this way. Um, with a record, you know, you know how a record basically works. The needle sits in the groove. It goes up and down. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's basically a minimum depth and a maximum depth, right? There is gotcha. a highest, yeah. there's a highest you can go in the groove and a lowest you can go in the groove. Right. And at any given time, the information that's going from the stylus to the speakers is how high in the groove is it? Right. Mm-hmm. With me so far. Yeah. Instead of thinking about sound being coded as highest to lowest, just think about the sound as being coded from brightest to darkest. On on like a on like a gradient, I assume. Yes. Huh. Yep. But like Wow. Yeah. So it's 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 a really interesting technology. And don't get me wrong, it's incredibly clever. But it is essentially encoding the same information just in a way that can be included on a 35 millimeter print. Right. Right. This sound technology is still in use today. If you go and see a movie being shown on 35 millimeter. No way. They just That's cool. They just nailed it in one. It that that is one of the wildest facts to me, to be honest with you. I always kind of wondered how movie sound worked. Um, I knew it was encoded into the film somehow. Uh, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know what the codex was. Um, it's a really, it's a really, really interesting technique. So where we're at with sound, let's recap real quick. We can record things with pretty good fidelity. We're recording onto records, usually seventy-eight RPM, usually shellac. Uh, we can pick up from various sources using pretty decent microphones. We can amplify sound, but we're still basically taking a thing that exists in the world and taking that audio information and dumping it into a single track. Right. Right. Um, things are going to start getting wild with audio recording. So why don't we take a break here? And when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, magnetic recording. All right. Back on HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. And I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad you could come on. <laughs> so I wanted to play like talk show guest okay. for a second. Because it mostly came up as kind of sarcastic. I was like, I'm sorry, Paul. I thought you wanted to be here. <laughs> no, that's fine. I do. I, I am legitimately happy to be here. I can just hear you holding up a coffee mug full of nothing or maybe some tepid water um <laughs> no you've you've already blown my mind at least twice 
so far. Um, That's not and, bad. And you said, and you said things were going to accelerate. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. Well, let's uh, let's start off with a very simple question then. In that case, because uh, you know, I feel like I have a reputation to uphold at this point. Um, if you had to take a guess at uh, how early magnetic recording starts, if you had to put a year on it, what would you guess? Let's, um, you know, for some context like, here, here, let me, okay. let me remind you of a couple things. Uh, so 1857, we have the first attempt at recording. That's the one that's just visual. 1877, mm-hmm. we have, uh, the phonograph from Thomas Edison, which is the first really functional version of, uh, sound recording and kind of like 1925 or so we're looking at the first, you know, electric, uh, you know, the, the proliferation of electric sound recording. So, you know, microphones, uh, uh, amplified sound, all of that. So magnetic, what's, what's the, what's the guess? I want to say in my head, it's like late fifties, mid to late fifties, mid to late fifties. Well, yeah. what if I told you, you were off by like a solid 80 years? what 1878 uh the year after edison creates the phonograph a guy named oberlin smith patents uh the concept at least behind uh magnetic wire recording he uh he comes up with this idea that if um you know as we talked about with the optical recording uh on the film if really all we're talking about is like a variance of intensities over time recorded to a medium why not use variations in magnetic polarization uh over a strip of you know iron wire basically so you know wire runs through at a standardized rate it's magnetized the magnet moves closer or further from the wire and that that magnetic information is encoded then you know to to play it back you just need to do the same thing in reverse read the amount of magnetization right simple enough and so and so he couldn't he couldn't do this but he had the he had the concept for it that's right but it's only 18 it's only 20 years later that 1898 uh valdemar polson uh actually practically demonstrates this now the quality is uh garbage i suppose is the (laughs) kind way of putting it it's not it's not really like functional right like it's not a good way to record sound but it's there right the the medium really only becomes viable with the advent of of electric recording right without the ability to kind of uh amplify sound um control the amplification of sound that magnetization is an extremely inexact process right and furthermore there's there's kind of an issue with um magnetization as a relative uh, value when it's stored uh, in this way how to put this so if you if you just have a, a, a wire made of iron it's gonna have some magnetic property right mm-hmm. so how do you key in what is the you know if we're using the the record example how do you key in what is the lowest and what is the highest point in those peaks and valleys right it's it's kind of tricky and what ends up happening is just like a lot of bad 
sound information, a lot of inexact sound information, and a lot of trouble like keeping that dialed in properly, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wire, fide- wire fidelity is really low, um, but you can make it out. And once again, we kind of get back to the business world where these things are used in dictation recorders, but they're not really used for entertainment purposes because the music sounds bad. As things get a little bit better with, uh, you know, the electric processes for recording a little bit more uh, complex, uh, the BBC actually starts experimenting with magnetic storage. Uh, And in 1932, they start looking at recording to uh, steel tape, which is extremely unwieldy. Yeah. When you say steel tape, do you mean kind of like a cassette tape, but the tape is made out of steel? Yeah, except I think probably a closer like approximation of like size and thickness and things like that would be like a tape measure. Oh my god. Um it's pretty it's pretty hefty. And so like it goes really fast. It's on these massive reels that are like 50 pounds each. And like it's sharp. It's really dangerous. <laughs> So let's okay. Let's let's um. This is this is worth talking about a little bit because we'll get into it with uh, records later as well. When you're talking about sound recording, it's all about how much information you can store, right? Like the more information you can store, the closer it's going to sound to the original, right? Make sense. Mm-hmm. The thing that's nice about uh, seventy eight over you know uh, a 33 which is the the speed of a standard lp now 33 rotations per minute is it stores almost three times as much information because it's going so much faster um the the changes in waveform are stretched over more physical distance and so it can pick up more nuance within that waveform okay right right so all of these mediums, when they start out, go very fast, uh, and tape is not—it's—it's uh, it's not exempt to this. Like I think this stuff is going—I'm um, trying to remember. It's—it's—it's it's, it's ridiculously fast, though. I—I I, should—I'll I'll pop it into the into the show notes. But like it's—it's—it's it's, it's speeding along. Like it's way faster than real to real needs to go. Once we actually figure that out, right? It's not good. They don't really get that far with this experiment. Honestly, I think more because of the weight and the poor quality than anything else. Um, yeah, I'm trying to imagine the sound of this like 50 pound reel of steel tape. I mean, I feel like just the residual sound from from the rotation and this tape running through, I feel like it would be noisy as all get out. You'd have to do it in a completely different location, basically. It would yeah. have to be entirely soundproof from the rest of the process. Yeah. And even then, like, I don't know if it's in the same corner of the building, you're probably, you know, like it's not, it it must have been just, just horrendous to work with. So they're kind of looking at this going, this isn't really going anywhere. Right. Then something really interesting happens in the 1930s, uh, into the 1940s. Um, radio is really popping off in this, in this era, right? Radio at this point in time, like all other recording stuff, is essentially being done live. 
right? So when you're listening to music on the radio, there are musicians playing that music and it is being broadcast live out to you. Okay. They are sometimes figuring out how to play rate like like play records into the radio, but the fidelity isn't great. So most times they're opting for live musicians. Um, same with any broadcasters on the radio. They're reading live on air. Yeah. But this weird thing happens during the war, which is that, you know, as the, uh, as the allies are monitoring uh, German radio broadcasts, they realize that there are certain broadcasts going out at certain times, which are... Like, very interesting. Um, It seems that the same person is broadcasting from different locations at approximately the same time. Which isn't really possible. And they go, well, okay, it must be a recording, right? But keep in mind that recordings in this era on 78s are three minutes long. And these broadcasts are going for more than three minutes. Right. So that's weird. What's more, you can usually tell when something is being played off of a record onto the radio because the quality suffers for it, right? Yeah. And they weren't noticing any distinguishable drop in quality. Right. Because just like to go back to, you know, like you saying like recording, for example, phonograph to phonograph, like I assume that if you were playing a something recorded on the radio, you were playing it out of a speaker and then into a microphone that was then broadcasting it over the airwaves. Yeah. That's kind of my, my understanding. I'm sure that that became more sophisticated over time, but like still like even, even think about just taking like a record player now and putting it, you know, putting the signal directly into uh, a, a, a radio broadcast, right? Like it's got a different quality to it. Yeah, and yeah. when the technology was worse, that quality was more pronounced, right? Or, or that that distinctive quality was more pronounced. Mm-hmm. So none of this makes sense. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, you know, there's lots of different technology stuff that the that the Nazis had come up with that were you know kind of didn't really make sense. But that was kind of the war, right? A lot of it is espionage and you know tech races and things like that. They find out once the war is finished, that a guy named uh, Friedrich Matthias uh, developed a magnetic tape in the 1930s that solved a number of the problems that we'd seen so far with magnetic recording. First off, it was on a lightweight material. When it started, it was actually paper. And Oh, wow. It, yeah, very fragile, but, you know, um, they, they coated this paper tape with a, uh, with a magnetic material that was actually pretty stable. So once it had become magnetized, it held its charge pretty securely. That was an issue with some of the, uh, steel stuff that they were using, right? Because when you magnetize a metal, you know, when it's beside metal of different charges, like it's going to kind of bleed a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. This stuff stayed pretty pretty solid exactly where it was so it retained its quality a little bit better uh he also invented something known as ac bias and this is something that is still uh like pretty important in in recording now and i I don't want to get too into the weeds on this stuff but remember how i said uh with magnetic information it was harder to kind of dial in 
uh, absolute values. Right, right. What he did was he put a strip that was constantly that, that, that was that was consistently magnetized. And so it it set an absolute top value as being like the the on value, like the the hundred percent value, and set it in a frequency that was beyond human hearing for the most part. Okay. Are you familiar with the term tape hiss? Mm, I don't think so, no. Like when you play a cassette tape, like there's a distinctive like hiss to it though, right? You kind of know yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, okay. You're not talking about like that that little whistle at the beginning of like a cassette tape. You're talking about just like, just like the sound of the tape. Yeah. That's okay. partially because of the AC bias. That hiss is the trade-off for getting intelligible sound out of the rest of the magnetic tape. Wow. So he's the one that invents that. And the Nazis are using this magnetic tape to record these broadcasts that the Allies had noticed. Lots of other things, too. You know, it's extremely use, useful uh, as a medium for, for sound recording. But, you know, they're using it in their, their, their broadcasts. And it's basically indistinguishable from live broadcasts, which is really impressive. After the war, you know, they managed to capture a bunch of these, these tape recording machines they get to kind of crack into them, figure out how they work a little bit. And everyone's really, really impressed with this technology. Like, it's it's considered, like, incredible for the time. 1947, uh, the 3M Corporation, you know, like Scotch Tape and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're actually the first ones to uh, replace the paper with uh, first cellulose, so the same thing as film. And then uh, a little bit later, polyester. So you actually get like a little bit more durable uh, tape. They're also right. they're also the ones that add a red ferric oxide to the tapes uh, to improve the quality of the held charge, and that's how audio tape gets that like brownish color. It's that same yeah yeah. It's that same compound. So that's an iron uh, compound. Uh, that uh, allows it to keep and, and like hold a very specific charge for a really long time. So audio tape as we know it is essentially set in 1947. And then uh, along came a musician. You may have heard his name, Bing Crosby. Extremely, yeah. extremely popular on the radio. Very, very popular entertainer. Hated doing live radio. Just absolutely loathed it. Not because he's like a shy person, but because like he found it sort of like almost like needlessly stressful. And is that is that kind of the norm at this point? Like I, I know you said, you know, typically at the time, if you heard a band on the radio, it was it was somebody playing live. So so is that was that the kind of migration from, you know, you having to record you know, 150 wax cylinders at a time to you having to go and and play all of these different radio shows. So the pressing uh, process had been pretty well refined in the, you know, kind of 1920s. So like as a recording artist, you didn't need to keep doing the like pressing every hundred copies thing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. But with, you know, as, as a music artist in the 1940s, even 1930s. So, OK, it's. Like, have you heard of the Grand Old Opry show? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, it's this idea that there's this, like, radio show. It's nationally syndicated. And it's sort of like once a week, it is, like, destination listening. And the reason for that is because they're going to pull a big name. 
And that person is mm-hmm. going to come and they're going to do a live show and it's going to be broadcast over the radio live. So it's going to be a recording artist, you know, somebody that, whose, whose records you can buy and that's part of them getting exposure and things like that. But it's also the opposite, right? Like it's bringing people in to listen to the program to, you know, get advertising dollars and so on um, by bringing these well-established recording artists in and having them perform on the radio kind of mutually beneficial. So somebody like Bing Crosby is going to be expected to do like a couple dozen uh, radio shows per year. He's also a touring musician in between this and a recording musician, but this is like part of the hustle, right? Yeah. He liked working in the studio a lot more because if there was a bad take, he could throw it out and he didn't like putting bad takes out there. Even though recording or radio at that point, like it's not being recorded. It's not like anyone's going to necessarily have a record of his goof forever, but he liked that level of control over his, his output. Right. He also just kind of didn't like, he'd rather be home, which I think I can kind of relate to. Um, he, he was shown some of these very early tape recorders in, uh, you know, very shortly after the war and was really, really impressed by them. Like he knew a guy that was involved in like the recovery operations and he was really, really impressed with the fidelity of it. Right. He had already actually tried weaseling his way out of recording or uh, radio contract stuff by trying to get them to play like records, like kind of recording what would sound like a live show to a record, but the, the right. fidelity was too bad. Like it wasn't working. Right. So when he heard this tape and how good it sounded, he was extremely impressed. So he, he, uh, talked it over with the label and they agreed to like, give it a shot sort of thing. Right. And in 1947, October of 1947, he debuted the first taped radio broadcast. And it's not just about the music. The whole thing was very tightly edited from start to finish, right? Because they could like stop and start the tape where it was recording. They could, they could rehearse all of the like banter in between. Uh, The ad reads could be, you know, rehearsed and things like that. All of it was done ahead of time, recorded in the studios on good microphones under ideal conditions. And he could basically drop off a radio show that was the exact right length, spliced together exactly the way he wanted it. And people were blown away by this. It sounded so good to them. Did people know it was a recording or did they believe that it was like a live special that was pulled off really, really well? That's a great question. I didn't actually see anything on like general population okay. reaction. I it, it's it's one of those things, though, that like I, I don't I don't necessarily know if they would have like, you know, hidden that fact from people. But like the options here are either they knew it was recorded and went, wow, this sounds so much better than live radio because it's so tight mm-hmm. or they didn't know. And they went, that was the tightest radio show I've heard in my entire life. Bing is good at this. Let's hear more from him. Right. So either way, people are very impressed. I just don't know what they're they're you know. Uh, understanding of the situation necessarily was at that single point in time. But it essentially changes radio forever at that point. 
you know, you can record more than the three minutes on a 78. You can put together an entire show ahead of time and you can make sure it's good before it ever goes on air. You don't have any surprises. You don't have any flubs. This is perfect. Yeah. It's still, when we're looking at what's happening here, it's still, you know, recording that one take. It's essentially a live recording every single time. The only difference there is the ability to stop and start, right? Right. But as people start experimenting with magnetic tape, because they realize like, well, if I can stop and start, can I, you know, for example, cut tape and splice it together? Answer is yes. Can I, you know, do other things with the tape to make a broadcast sound better or make a recording sound better? And they start, they start messing around with it a little bit. And one of the first things they come up with, uh, it's actually, it's actually slightly before this whole Bing Crosby thing. Uh, in the mid 1940s, they realize, remember we talked earlier about like the summative nature of sound mm-hmm. yeah, and how you can kind of get two different sounds overlapping and, and sounding good. They had been playing with the idea of stereophonic sound for a while at this point, but essentially the way you needed to listen to a stereo recording was to have two record players and hit play at the same time, which meant that it never worked. Right. But what they realized with tape is that if you ran two write heads beside each other, you could write two different channels to the same tape and create stereo sound. As long as you had a player, as long as you had a player with uh, the ability to read two channels at once. So that's a big deal for music. It's, it's much more immersive for people, right? Yeah. The next step is people realizing that like, well, if I can record to two channels, on a tape at the same time can i record to two channels on the tape at two different times and in 1947 patty page records the song confess which is the first song overdubbed with a singer's own vocals where she's essentially doubling herself right so she's so like singing it once and then singing it again over top of the initial recording that's right right at this point, all bets are off. Like, this is a very experimental era. And one of the biggest leaders, actually, in experimentation is a musician, uh, inventor uh, named Les Paul from the guitar, Les Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does a ton of work in the 1950s, essentially establishing music recording as we understand it today. Like, no joke. Like, the, the way. The way you record music now is what Les Paul set up in the early 1950s. He, uh, his, his wife, uh, Mary Ford, was a, was a singer, and he worked extensively on her stuff. He got very excited about this idea of record, recording to multiple tracks. He kind of went, well, if, if two, then why not more? And uh, commissioned a, a company called Ampex to custom build him the first eight-track recorder. He starts working with asynchronously recording various parts. So, you know, if you can record one track at a time, we don't actually have to have the whole band play at the same time. So we can, you know, start off by recording the drums and make sure that that's all in sync. And if it is, then add the bass, then add the guitars, then add any uh, melody instruments, then add vocals finally, right? Um, He realizes that... 
Uh, if you're recording things separately, you can apply effects to certain tracks, but not to others. You know, there had been some effect work before this, especially like uh, reverb. A lot of recording studios would actually have like physical rooms with specific spaces, like shapes in the space to create reverb, like for vocals and things like that. Oh, no way. That is so cool. But like you're going to capture everything, right? Everything's going to have reverb. Same thing if you're doing, you know, for example, if you like unintentionally overdrive the uh, the the microphones, right? Everything's going to be overdriven. Everything's going to be peaking. Yeah. Uh, this way, you could intentionally only put a some sort of an effect on a single track, and so like that starts uh, a boom in like effect innovations, right? Like so, you get people who are working on things like. Um, you know, they, they realize if, if they record things too loud that it distorts. So distortion uh, starts becoming a thing. Um, uh, phasing becomes a thing. Um, tape delay becomes a thing. Tape delay is literally exactly what it sounds like. It is recording uh, to a tape and then uh, at the same time, like re-recording that same thing onto a second section of the tape. Um, so the, the process is a sound goes in, it's, uh, written to a piece of tape and then there's a head directly behind it that is a read head and it reads it as soon as it's recorded and then writes it to the, the track beside it. And so the way that you figure out how long the tape delay is, and this creates like an echo sort of effect. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way that you determine how long the delay is, is the space between the two magnetic heads on the recorder. Like it's a very physical, right. very physical thing. It's like a very like uh, tactile thing, but it like ha it has a really uh, interesting effect on the sounds. Right. And then you get delay. Like that's, that's where delay is invented. Right. Right. So, you know, people start getting really, really inventive. Ampex takes their designs uh, that they made for Les Paul and they take a three track recorder to market commercially and studios okay. start picking that up and basically exclusively working with those. Like all the 60s Motown stuff, three track recorders. So like, and I'm just trying to visualize like a, like a three track recorder because you're, you're like talking about multiple heads. Mm hmm. Is it multiple heads all writing to the same piece of magnetic tape? Is that the idea? Yeah. Think of it like uh, lanes in a swimming pool. Okay. Mm -hmm. So okay, yeah, yeah. when we started out, when you're laying down that magnetization, uh, you're just laying it across the entire tape, right? But yeah. what, what a multi-track recorder does is sections off the tape and says this this head is only allowed to write in this lane of the pool. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. That just, sorry, that made it click. I got you. Lane, lane one is getting written with this and lane two mm -hmm. and three, nothing is going on there. Second pass through, we're going to record to track two. That, that single strip of the tape all the way up is only given this one single head. And so interesting because of that summative nature of, of music that we were talking about, when the player plays back the recording at the end, it's essentially playing three different things at the same time, but they're all coming through the speaker at once, and it, so it sounds unified. Right, right. Very clever. 
but also like very simple at the same time. Okay, so one more one more question. So then, if so, let's say you know, let's say you're you're laying down really simple like drums, bass, and guitar. And as you said, like you get so you get the drum track down and you're happy with it, and that's head one. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're writing head two and it's the bass, and and you know halfway through the take somebody flubs a note, can you can you just do you just go back? And and re-record from start to finish, or is that where editing comes in, like splicing tape comes in? How does well, how does that part work? When they start off, they would probably just redo the take, uh, right? But right. people develop a, a technique called dropping in, which is essentially starting the, the the head in the middle of the track. So you know the the, the idea is you know the 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 section of that part. So the the guitarist messed up the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. You figure out where the bridge starts on the tape and right before the bridge starts, you hit record on the guitar track again and he replays gotcha. and he replays the bridge properly this time and then he drops back out. And so he doesn't need to do any of the verses, any of the choruses. He just re-records the part that he messed up and you're good to go. And nobody's going to know the difference because the, wow. the rewriting process remagnetizes the tape in such a way that no information is left from the previous take. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's oh man, it's so interesting. Now what you get is something called bouncing tracks. And again, keep in mind all of this terminology is still used in recording, <laughs> like all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um bouncing a track is when you have well you have three tracks to work with right so let's say first you want to get your um your rhythm section really good so you lay down your your drums you lay down your bass now you only have one track left right but you have guitars to do still a couple of guitars maybe you have vocals to do still that's probably going to need its own space so let's take our track one which is drums or track two which is bass and Instead of leaving those as separate tracks, now that we're happy with them, we're going to lock them in and we're going to bounce them to track three, which means we're going to read track one and track two into a signal and record that signal to track three. Now track three is both drums and bass mixed together. Now you can never separate them, but you've just freed up track one and two to work again. Oh, I love it. Really clever. Yeah, yeah. They move up to four track uh player uh sorry four track recorders pretty quickly like in the mid 60s all the stuff that like the beatles did all the stuff that the rolling stones did that's going to be all four track recorders gotcha and you can chain these together too the nice thing about tape is because it's so clean a recording you can sort of bounce these tracks a number of times before you start hearing any sort of like information degradation Mm-hmm. So you can work with a fairly substantial amount of of information at any given time. Like all the all the whole like Phil Spector like wall of sound stuff where his whole thing was just like as many tracks as possible like fill up the entire frequency range, right? Like uh that's all done on three tracks. Like wow. You know, Sgt. Pepper is done on four tracks. The uh the engineers at Apple Studios were like really well known for their ability to uh, bounce tracks or chain recorders to get like tons of tracks really, really cleanly without uh, any, uh, you know, excessive tape hiss, without any degradation. 
but it's all done on four tracks. That is truly insane to me. Yeah. And like a lot of that, like experimental stuff that the Beatles get into that and, and lots of other bands too. But a lot of the stuff that they get into is, is, is facilitated by the four tracks, right? Because then you mm-hmm. get into, you know, people doing really interesting things with the tape, like flipping it around and playing it in reverse, right? Like, you know, yeah, you can start yeah. manipulating the physical tape to get different sounds. Like it's all very, very playful in this era. 1970s see a lot of, uh, it sees the the advent of like integrated circuits which is sort of an intermediary step between like actual like electronics and like the old vacuum tubes so you start getting more types of effects that are built into like pedals and things like that that's where you get the whole you know uh, overdrive pedals and things like that right fuzz boxes right um you know the peter frampton talk box like all of that stuff that that uh that technology uh, allows uh, those types of effects to be brought in, but like those effects don't exist until you have the ability to multi-track, right? Because it's not useful to have a distortion pedal if the distortion pedal distorts every single thing on the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still really talking about, at least from a consumer perspective, record players at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Post-war had given away had given away to. Uh, you know, the 78s were gone more or less. Uh, we really moved to a system where either you have a seven inch single that's like a 45 uh, RPM uh, or you have a 12 inch LP, which is a 33 RPM. And the only reason that that's kind of working out is because um, players have gotten better. Styluses have gotten better. The grooves in the 78 era were like as wide as almost three millimeters sometimes. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but like it's pretty wide for a record player. Right. Um, these have gotten like microscopic. They're very, very thin, but the needles have gotten uh, good enough and sensitive enough to pick up that information and cram a lot more onto a record. Some people had home reel to reel players. It was a pretty niche thing. Tape is a pain. It's really, really annoying to work with. Like, I would. I would sort of put it in the same category as like, yes, some people have like home, like movie projectors, like, you know, the kind that you might've used in school at one point, like you have to actually like thread the, the film in there. Like, yeah, sure. Individuals own those. Most people didn't. They were annoying. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you're seeing a home reel to reel player, you're not talking, like you're still not talking about cassettes. You're talking about like, um, a massive reel. I mean, yeah, they're not, they're not that big. I would say those, those reels are maybe five or like the size of a five or six inches across. Like they're not, they're not that big, but like they're still, it's still just kind of like loose tape wound on one of these things. Right. And you know, the the tension could be finicky and if you messed it up, you're going to, you know, unwind the whole thing on the floor and, you know, it can get damaged and all of that stuff. Like it was very much like you need to really be a certain specific type of person to want one of these things, but they, you know, they existed. Sure. Um, in 1963 Phillips, the, you know, the, the company Phillips, uh, developed the compact audio cassette. This was one of the things that surprised me the most when I was going through the compact audio cassette is like the cassette tape that you're thinking of when you think of tapes. Right. It actually slightly predates the eight track. The reason it didn't take off quickly. Well, there's a couple of reasons here. Number one, 
initially it was hard to write to those with any decent quality if you think of like okay. a reel-to-reel tape that tape is relatively wide compared to the width of a cassette tapes actual magnetic tape right that tape was trying to cram four tracks or or i mean always did cram four tracks onto that very thin magnetic tape it was not great when it started it's actually meant once again for business purposes for like dictation uh, uh machines and things like that and it was sufficient for those purposes but you know the only way to get enough information onto one of those things was with the flipping method right like you have to flip side a and side b on those on those tapes yeah yeah do you know how that worked like do you know why or how they got two sides on those tapes no idea so they each have four tracks like each each magnetic tape has four tracks right right so basically track one and track three would be your side a left channel right channel so it's stereo okay and then when you flip it over what had been your kind of track two and four was now in the one and three position and runs the other way so a cassette tape player only reads in position one and three right oh wow so if it was able to read one, two, three, and four all at the same time, it would hear side A going forward and side B going backward. Oh my god! Yeah. So that's how that works. I, I mean, in my like, in my, I don't know. When I started listening to cassettes, I always assumed it was different sides of the tape, but I guess that doesn't really make. <laughs> any sort of sense oh d- uh, don't worry w- i went on this exact same journey myself when i was thinking this through. that's wild yeah i know i thought that was really interesting yeah so flipping is a little annoying people found the cassettes kind of flimsy at first the eight track is actually designed around the same time it is designed a hundred percent entirely for cars that is the reason they built eight tracks okay they're about three times the size of a cassette uh they have double the tracks so they can get more on there they don't need to be flipped which is important for cars and because the tape is wider it's got a little bit better uh fidelity before the era when we can write really well to those compact uh, uh tape cassettes even though you can get an eight track player for at home like that's not what they're for Mm-hmm. they're four cars people had tried putting like disc players in cars like there are actually like attempts to put like record players in cars um you go over one bump and you on, scratch on, your like, pimp my ride you mean like... no like actually like in the 60s they tried this they tried putting well more late 50s but they tried putting actual record players into cars so you can listen to music while you drive oh my god like there were there were radios and that's fine but sometimes you want to listen to the thing you want to listen to right <laughs> Yeah, no, of course. I just where would you where would you put it? Uh yeah, I mean cars were bigger back then too. <laughs> but like you would they they would be they'd be sized for a 45. So it's a little bit smaller. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I th- I think it goes in like the cent- the like the front console, but like I'm not entirely sure, man. It it seems like a terrible idea to me. I mean, yeah, it seems dangerous to be trying to like you know, flip from side A to side B. In yeah. the middle of the highway. I mean, we did it with CDs, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. 
anyways that's that's not the point the point is a track like they're 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 entirely for car culture you know planes too but like if you're at home you're listening to your records like that's still that's still the best way to listen to your music and that's going to continue like well into uh the 80s well into the early 90s right Mm -hmm. cassettes do start getting better the technology starts getting better they start kind of figuring this stuff out and it slowly starts taking over the market share from uh eight tracks uh eight tracks kind of peak late 70s sort of thing uh i think i saw 1978 as their like highest selling year and after that cassette tapes start taking over really quickly they're smaller you know uh the players get a lot better the front loading uh uh players in cars are a lot uh you know a lot more convenient cars have figured out you know they figured out how to put players in cars that don't need you to actually flip the cassette they can you know play the other way um you know stuff like that and cassettes have a really interesting effect on the music industry as a whole we haven't talked a whole lot about like the recording industry it's bad generally for musicians it's pretty predatory uh you know not not a lot has changed there i guess is the reason i haven't really focused on it too much but you know up until the 80s really if you're going to hear music it's going to have gone through one of the major record labels right and the reason for that is technology and infrastructure they have the marketing budgets they have the ability to press records they have the recording studio access and they have the money for all of this very important very expensive stuff people could write to tapes at home tape recorders become a thing and they start out bad but they start getting better this is a massive panic point for the recording industry because people start making stereos with the ability to say dub from one cassette to another really quickly they can dub from records to a cassette so you know the thinking there is if you've bought the record why not be able to listen to it on the go Mm. seems reasonable enough right but if you're a record company you'd rather sell them both the record and the tape they can record from the radio which is free and you know uh people enjoy the uh the the freedom that that gives them over their music right because you know records are expensive and cassettes are even more expensive even though they're less money to produce but a blank cassette is pretty cheap and so you get things like, for example, uh, pirated albums. So one friend buys it, they make copies on cassette for a bunch of other people. And that's just sort of a thing people do. So so that's been happening, I mean, not forever, but as, as early as it could happen, it was happening. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And it's always been, you know, lamented as this is going to be the end of the recording industry and it never really has. Uh, they just find different ways to screw over artists and consumers. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's always been they they've always found their way through it. But yeah, they've people have been pirating uh, albums forever. Um, you get mixtapes, so people selecting tracks off of albums or people recording tracks off of the radio to make their own custom mix is uh, a thing that starts happening uh, in the uh, in the eighties, and you know it, it starts really allowing the development of some pretty underground music scenes because a lot of 
uh, companies that wouldn't have had the money to necessarily press a whole bunch of vinyl can get some recording time in a studio, get the masters, and then produce produce a whole bunch of cassette tapes really cheap. Like literally sit there with a like with a boombox and just like dub cassette after cassette. I mean, there's 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 more. Uh, no, you you can you can send masters in to get cassettes produced. They're like oh, okay. they're like a tenth of the cost to produce from vinyl though. Oh wow! Okay, and like especially in the seventies because vinyl gets really expensive uh, because of the OPEC crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you start getting really crappy, really thin, flimsy records. Uh, that's part of the appeal of cassette tapes is the records get worse, not necessarily just that the tapes get better. Right. Um, so, you know, if you're uh, part of the punk scene in the late 70s, you probably can't get a record press, but you might be able to order, you know, a couple hundred cassettes, get your music out that way. Uh, you might be able to produce a demo and try and get like a demo tape to a label which is a little bit better proof of your ability to like execute on making music than necessarily just going to the label and saying, Hey, give us a shot. <laughs> um, you know, it, it really opens up a lot of options for different types of music, right? Like n- not just what the uh, major labels want to order. And this all coincides yeah. with stuff like, you know, uh, the, the advent of like cheap drum machines, right? Uh, cheap synths you know the moog was was created in the in the 60s but by the 80s you're getting really cheap casios that'll do you know decently well if all you're producing is a demo um you know it's it's a lot cheaper to make music as a an individual uh without label backing uh you get the walkman in 1979 which uh kind of personalizes music listening it's that kind of thing. Like all of these things are feeding in together to sort of bring out some variety in music taste, right? Like yeah. the eighties punk scene doesn't happen without cassettes. Not yeah. I never, I never would have known that. Not, not really. I mean, you know, it, it could have been there, but it wouldn't have spread in the same way. Right? Like you don't have that thing where your buddy at school is slipping you a cassette and being like, you have to listen to this. Mm-hmm. Some pro studios actually still use magnetic storage, usually data, but magnetic. Tapes have never entirely gone away. It's just a very reliable method of storage. Wow. Which I find very interesting. I would have thought they'd all gone digital ages ago, but uh, no, that's, that's not true. Cassettes kind of peak in the, in the 1990s um, before you know the CD player uptake gets uh, you know really going, but... Yeah, there's there's still use of of magnetic tape in in recording to this day. Man, I mean, yeah, that was I mean a you know little personal cassette player is probably the first thing I ever listened to any sort of music on. Like that's mm-hmm. I mean I that's that's I mean man cassettes were such a huge part of listening to music growing up for me. Yeah, me too. Um, speaking of CDs and and digital music. Um, the theory for encoding music digitally goes back to 1937. A guy named Alex Reeves, or Alec, sorry, Alec Reeves, came up with the idea. Um, it's not really implemented for a while, but digital digital recording is interesting because everything we've talked up talked about up till now is really encoding the exact wave 
that physically exists in the air in some manner, you know, often processing it. But if you zoom in on it, it is a curved line. Right, right. Basically, the theory behind digital goes, the human ear is only so sensitive. If you take thin enough slices, you can record values uh, of points on that curve and encode those and use them to recreate a sound wave. And sort of like other things that we've talked about here, I feel like the, the initial reaction to that is often like, that can't be, that can't be good enough. You know, like that can't be, that can't be high enough resolution. There's gotta be something yeah. kind of yeah, lost yeah, yeah, yeah. there. You know, the NHK, the, uh, the, the, um, the national broadcaster in Japan started recording digitally in the 1960s. No way. Yeah. They, they started onto, onto what tape onto magnetic tape. So the idea is that you can encode values rather than trying to deal with like that smooth curve that kind of creates some bleeding on magnetic tape and dealing Mm -hmm. with the tape hiss. Instead, what you can encode is digital, like binary one or zero, and then re-encode that into uh, a waveform as points on a line. So wow modern like most modern recording well most modern let's use the cd uh as as our kind of baseline because the cd is released in 1982 and that's that's kind of the the gold standard for digital uh up until like purely digital files right phillips and sony actually collaborated on the cd which is kind of interesting um yeah cds are audio encoded at uh, and it's a wave file that's encoded onto them so it's not compressed at all it is encoded at 16 bits which means uh you know each point on the line uh is between you know it, it is encoded in a 16 digit string of binary which gives you quite a bit of information okay and it's recorded at 44.1 kilohertz which means that that slice of information is taken 44,100 times every second. That's a lot of times every second. This is essentially the the standard for recording still digitally. Um, either 44.1 or 48 kilohertz um, is, is what's generally used for, for wave files. And then, you know, CDs were, were two tracks, so they were stereo. But basically what they're doing is, yeah, 44,000 times per second, uh, it is checking what the value is of that wave. Uh, it's mapping a point on, you know, a, a, a graph of the, the waveform over time and then interpolating the wave from that information. So connecting the dots, essentially. And yes, technically it is more jagged than a waveform. The thing is, the amount that you have to slow it down before you can discern the difference between a digital recording and an analog recording, it's no longer identifiable as whatever that sound is. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, very good. I don't know. Like the CD comes out and there's a lot of people who are very, very into it. They love the clarity. They think it's a, you know, the durability is great. There are a lot of people who lash back at it and say, like, it's lacking in character. It doesn't have, you know, it's it's too cold, things like that. Listen, I, I really like listening to music on vinyl. It sounds really nice and warm. 
I am also under no illusions about it. That warmth is a lack of fidelity in the sound. It is just a lack of fidelity that has a familiar um, quality to it, right? Yeah, yeah. The thing that is distinguishing a digital recording from that analog recording isn't that warmth. Like it's not like it's 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 or or isn't like a fidelity issue, right? It's not actually that warm in real life. The fidelity of the waveform is is not perceptible by human beings. Um, so yeah, digital recording is actually really really good. We you you talked briefly about the CD and not really understanding how it worked earlier. Essentially, all it is is it's a plastic disc and it's laser etched and la- later uh, laser read a series of pits and flats basically and uh, uh, i can't even remember which one's which basically if it's if it's not if it's pitted it's either a one or a zero and then if it's not pitted it's either a one or a zero i forget which direction but it's binary that's coded in via little bursts of laser and so when a laser goes over it reads it as either one or zero right which means Mm -hmm. every 16 uh, spaces that the thing moves because it's 16 bit is one slice that is one forty four thousandth of a second. Wow, it's very very accurate. Okay, so as I mean, I have to ask. I don't know if there is like an easy explanation, but as somebody who maybe didn't take the best care of my CDs, why? Is it the material that they're printed on that makes them so susceptible to being scratched and like being just, you know, altered in some way that 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 messes with the sound quality? So the actual notches are actually a lot closer to the label side of the plastic than they are to the surface of the plastic. Okay. And so you're not actually destroying the uh, the pits when you scratch it. What you're doing is affecting the laser's ability to read through what is supposed to be clear plastic. Okay. So you're you're refracting the laser. Oh my God. So you're not actually messing with, yeah, as you say, the sound itself, you're just, you're with the the laser's ability to to read what's there. That's why some of these uh, CDs could be restored. You know, like they they would have those like CD restorers that would like... They they basically sealed in those scratches so that the laser could properly see through it again. Oh man, okay, that's the that is the coolest thing that I've learned so far today. I'm like just because I feel like I the I I always you scratch a CD and you assume that you're damaging the information in some way. Oh sure, absolutely, and I mean if you damage the label side, you you can, uh, and there's no coming back from that. But yeah, a, a simple scratch on the on the face of it no there's there's ways around that wow so yeah i mean you know uh digital has a lot of advantages signal noise can be cleaned up a lot more easily sort of a blessing and a curse is that the loudness can be dialed in more carefully this results Mm -hmm. in something known as the loudness wars i'm not sure if you've come across that but i think i kind of have a sense of that yeah in like just like that's about like you know, com- compressing, I-, I-, I assume, like a file to the point that there's no, you lose like the, 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 I don't know, the dynamism, like the, you lose the ups and downs of a recording. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I use compression pretty 
liberally on this podcast because it's just speech, right? Like I want mm-hmm. people to be, you know, if, if I, if I move around and I'm like slightly further from the mic, I don't want people to just not be able to hear that. Uh, yeah, yeah. likewise, if one of us like laughs or something like that, I don't want to blow out eardrums. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to music, that's a slightly different experience, right? And people want a little bit of that dynamism, as you put it. Um, As compression gets better, people realize that they can just sort of cram more and more volume into this information, right? Because they can set it so precisely that they're not going to go over the uh, allowable maximum of volume, right? Mm -hmm. Digital doesn't really... So with with analog stuff, if you go too loud, it starts distorting, right? With yeah. digital stuff, it just stops working, uh, and that's what they call you know they'll call it clipping, and it sounds terrible. But um, when you have all of this control over your 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 sound and you're just mastering it to a CD, you can set it so that the loudest sound on your entire recording is also set to the maximum allowable sound, or just shy of the maximum allowable volume for a cd and now it is as loud as it can get and then with compression what compression does is make the uh, loudest sounds and the quietest sounds closer to the same volume and you can compress things until basically those two things are indistinguishable now you can make the entire song and everything about it as maximally loud on the cd uh, as the cd will go essentially and a lot of people really liked it because they like loud music and a lot of people who are like super into audio stuff got really mad about it uh, and nothing came of it. Um, you know, the, the loudness wars that it's kind of pulled back, like producers have gotten a lot better about maintaining some of that character to their music. But we're also a long way from like, you know, a guy with a banjo leaning over a gramophone and making sure to sing the right volume because there's literally no amplification involved, right? The final sort of blessing and curse of digital recording is that there's zero degradation of quality in copying. Okay. I, I've, how is that a curse? I, I mean, it's great for the consumer, right? And, it, and it's like great for uh, sound engineers, for example. Um, it's real bad if you are a record label. Mm. Oh, okay yeah yeah because you know the price of music so cassettes were more expensive than records and cds were more expensive than cassettes even though uh cassettes were cheaper to make than records and cds were cheaper to make than cassettes so they'd continue to got to, to get more expensive and the thinking there was the like you know oh as the quality gets better as the technology gets better the consumer will be w- willing to pay more right Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still like a physical good being sold there. In 1991, the MP3 format is developed by uh, the Fraunhofer Society, which is like a German think tank. They're you know kind of a futurist sort of organization, and they're going like, well, how do we sh- like what's what's next after CDs? the The issue with CD information is that you know, as we said, it's it's a it's an uncompressed uh, wave file. There's actually a lot of information involved there. Wave files are quite large. Like when I when I record one of these shows, you know, a, a podcast for HI101, it's not that uncommon for you know a show to be a couple of gigs, um, mm-hmm. just because it's so long. 
uh, when it's recorded lossless as a WAV file. Um, that isn't like a that isn't a way to like share music. Like you can't send WAV files that are, you know, that are just massive. You know, I think it's I think it usually works out to about twenty megabytes per minute uh, as a WAV file. It's either ten or twenty. I can't remember which, but it's 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 large, right? When they started working on this, there's this thing in sort of the perception of sound, like human processing of sound called auditory masking. Okay. And what that means is that there are times when we're hearing things that aren't there in the actual waveform because of harmonic resonances. Okay. And what that means is that you can basically have information stored in a waveform that isn't actually there and human beings will have no way of knowing that it's not there okay it gets real complicated real fast i'm not going to get too much further into it but trust me on this one (laughs) yeah no that's interesting the other thing that's important here is that like things like for example silence don't need to be uh encoded with the same amount of uh integrity Mm-hmm. Um, certain certain types of sound uh, require less information to encode. So MP3 was all about how do we get this massive, massive file and shrink it down as much as possible. And so they spent years working at this in trying to figure out a way to compress the amount of digital information needed to hear a file that is, or, or create a file that is virtually indistinguishable from a like a full wave file, right? Like an uncompressed file. Right. Um, remember our CDs are at 44.1 kilohertz of data, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the MP3 is like, they kind of vary between about 80 and 200, uh, bits of information per second. Like it's, it's, it's much, much smaller. There are people who will say that they can tell, you know, the 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 quality at like, you know, 80 or 100 bits. Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe you can train yourself to do it. I've never been able to tell the difference. Right. So it's not it's not outside the limits of human capacity, but but most people are not going to legitimately be able to tell the difference. Uh, that's my opinion on the matter at least um once you get up once you get up to like a 192 uh bit mp3 i don't think most people can tell the difference between that and like a lossless uh format right the mp3 means that you can put music in a format that can be very very easily shared with other people you know you can Mm -hmm. fit it you can fit it on a disc you can share it with friends uh as we get further into the 90s you can send it over the internet Mm-hmm. You know, all of this gets us to, you know, Napster, 1998. People start downloading music for free that has been pirated in MP3 formats. And, you know, in the early 2000s, everybody has computers just full of music for free. Once again, the record labels hate this, but it does also follow the trend that we've seen, right? Uh, extending from magnetic. When people have the ability to copy and share music, people do. And there's not really a ton that the record labels can do about it. Yeah. And yeah, there's copyright law. And yeah, there's, you know, 
all sorts of different laws in place and all of that stuff but like most people don't really see it as like much of a crime you know yeah the the technology as it gets better and gets easier and more portable and more affordable and you know better quality mostly what people want to do is share this stuff for free and it's interesting because like as you get into the early 2000s like recording software becomes better uh free versions come out you know digital recording straight to hard drives becomes bigger you know people start working at home recording stuff uh you know like sound recording really democratizes over the last 20 years or so in really really interesting ways uh one of which being you know the 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 medium that we're we're working in right now in, in podcasting the 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 level of production that someone can achieve at home with relatively little training and with mm, relatively little financial outlay with pretty decent quality in, uh, uh, equipment is just staggering. I, you know, when I look at the software that I used to make this show and I think about what the Beatles hacking away on a four track were able to accomplish and you know, I'm seeing things like multi-track as being a term being used here. I'm seeing, you know, track bouncing as a term that's being used here. I'm seeing effects that can be applied digitally directly to each of these tracks. Um, you know, all the stuff that's like right there, click of a mouse. And I imagine what those guys would have thought of it. They would have been so overwhelmed. They wouldn't have known what to do with it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it kind of even just you know skimming the surface of the history of it like yeah having all of this at your fingertips um it feels like cheating it really does and yet the methodology that you use to use all of this stuff is essentially the exact same as les paul laid out which is is something i mentioned earlier right 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 now you're not limited to the number of tracks because you can do it digitally it's a lot easier to do things like drop in. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a lot easier mm -hmm. to do things like edit and splice, um, you know, with, with things like MIDI technology, which we didn't really get into um, uh, musical, musical instrument, digital interfaces. Uh, it gives uh, a lot more options for, you know, playing music directly into a, a, a computer kind of bypassing the audio recording process altogether um, but the stuff that people are able to make, you know, in their homes, it's, it's, it's head and shoulders above what was available professionally, even 40 years ago, in a lot of cases, it's, it's really come a long way as, as recording improves, not a lot changes from like a fundamentals perspective, but as the technology improves, it democratizes on, along multiple axes in really interesting ways. And I think that's really incredible. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah. As I sit here watching the waveform, um, write itself across the screen, it's, um, it's, it's crazy to think about, about how far it's come in such a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it it really makes me curious to see, you know, what comes next because it's easy to sit here and go like, wow, the quality is amazing, and 
you know, the technology is great and it's, it's cheap and it's accessible and things like that. And, you know, you also wonder how many people are, are sitting there in like 1925 when they got the, the first, you know, dynamic microphone and, 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 uh, you know, electrically powered amp going like, man, recording's never getting better than this. Right. Like that's, that's the nature <laughs> of some of these technologies is that like, you can't just go like, well, this is the pinnacle. Cause you're going to be wrong. It's just yeah. a matter of like, which, which way does it go next? What gets better next? How do things get, um, you know, how, how does the, how does the social dynamic of things change? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm not going to get into the past 20 years of, you know, music piracy and streaming and, and all of this stuff. Uh, but you know, it, it really is, um, you know, I, I don't know. I was, I was excited to do this one because, you know, this is a technology that I use constantly to do this show. Like it's very, um, it's, it's much more behind the scenes than even some of the things we've talked about with like, you know, history theory and stuff like that. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. It, it's it's something that very directly affects uh me and it's very something very effect, directly affects you and it affects the listeners because it's the way that they get this show and like it's it's really weird how that's just become a sort of background hum to our lives but it's 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 really come so far so fast and and it's it's um yeah mostly exciting every year i see new stuff come out for professional stuff too but like home tech to make it easier uh and more accessible for people to make the stuff that they want and i i I, you know despite all of the the pitfalls of you know record labels and and streaming services and 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 some of some of that stuff i i do think that outside of that industry stuff the more accessible you can make tools like this uh for creative purposes the uh you know, at least in an ideal world, uh, the better off everybody ends up being because the, the more often people can make what they want to make, uh, and the easier it is for them to make what they want to make, uh, the better for sure. And, uh, I still, I still love that for as, you know, romantic as I see, you know, the idea of audio recording and, uh, and just preserving voices and preserving songs and music. Uh, Edison was essentially trying to create the first answering machine. I, uh, (laughs) I don't, I don't know if I'll get over that. It's, it, it was one of my favorite, it it was one of the things I was most looking forward to dropping on you. I, I, I can't lie about that. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a real good one. So it's beautiful. Anyway, that's, uh, that's what I've got for you for, audio recording i uh, i suppose it's not you know the the this quite the same like level of historicity that i'm i'm used to bringing out but man i was looking forward to doing this one with you i, I had a really good time talking about this stuff yeah yeah so did i this was a ton of fun man thank you cool well we'll have to do it again soon okay for sure Audio recording appeared virtually fully formed and has been done in more or less the same way for the past century, if you're willing to overlook some minor details. It's given us a new and important way of preserving the past, has accelerated culture in meaningful ways, and yet it's so ubiquitous in our daily lives that it's hard to imagine a world without it. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. 
For example, in this episode, I say that the Edison recording we listened to was the first recording. Uh, that's not entirely true. Edison did make the first recording, but what we listened to wasn't that recording and may not have even been Edison. It was from a very early promotional recording for the phonograph that had a few different music and poem selections on it and may have used a voice actor in Edison's place. However, it is the oldest known surviving recording and is still a good representation of what that first one might have sounded like being only about a year uh, later. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 was a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.